Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of Engendered, our guest is Jennifer Staubach Gates, a Dallas City Council member representing District 13. First elected in 2013, Councilmember Gates won a new term in the general election on May 6, 2017. In her role as council member, she serves as the chair of the Government Performance and Financial Management Committee and sits on the Public Safety Committee as well. She is also the co-chair of the Visit Dallas Board of Directors. Today, we will be speaking with Councilmember Gates about her role as the chair for Dallas's Domestic Violence Task Force, which seeks to create a systemic response to end domestic violence in Dallas and to bridge communication between the Dallas Police Department, the District Attorney's Office, judges and community partners, And we will also learn how this collaboration has strengthened the responses to domestic violence for Dallas residents and its plans for improved community coordination. So welcome, Councilmember Gates. It's a pleasure to have you on our show. Well, thank you, Terry. I appreciate you reaching out and look forward to our conversation. So you may have um, heard from your staff, one of the reasons that I'm really interested in having a conversation with you is because I'm also a member of the New York City Domestic Violence Task Force. And I feel like the work that the Dallas Domestic Violence Task Force has done over the past 30 years um, is exemplary from what I understand and from what I've read. And so I really want to be able to share this with our listeners and hopefully with the members of the task force in New York and across the country. Um, And hopefully Dallas can be an example to share best practices and um, pay it forward, the practices and structures and policies that you've employed and implemented. Well, I'm happy to share with you, um, you know, how, how we're structured, how we work, how we operate within, um, you know, kind of the parameters of the city and the county. So starting at the beginning, in terms of the origins of the Dallas DV Task Force, can you talk about how it came about? Because it was a little bit controversial. Yes, it actually dates back to 1987 when under... At- Under a court order, because of police response related to domestic violence, uh, the task force was initiated. At that time, um, I'm not sure exactly how the time frame it was required, but after we met the obligations of the judgment, the city decided that it was um, important and they wanted to continue um, having the task force operate under one of our committees, the Public Safety Committee. I think it's traditionally always been chaired by a female council member through the years. And they've been probably taken on different responsibilities depending on what was happening at the time in the city or issues that needed to be addressed. I took office in 2013 and the mayor asked me to chair this committee. Um, He had recently, uh, the mayor, our mayor in Dallas, They had a brutal murder in in Dallas, and it was right before I took office. And and the mayor just, I think he was, it really impacted him. It was happened at a hospital garage. His mother had just been at that hospital. He had been coming in and out of that garage, I think, and couldn't believe in a a public place in the city that he was mayor of, um, a woman was brutally uh, murdered by her husband. 
So he took a whole different approach regarding men standing up against domestic violence. And he's kind of continued to champion that. Um, we work in collaboration uh, with his, you know, men, men's stance. But we as a task force, he, he kind of strengthened it and called in our DAs. There was always a level of collaboration, but he put in place an executive committee that was um, that was comprised of the DPD. Um, I was kind of the coordinator, the task force chair, as well as the DA's office, um, the judges, and then advocates were at the table too. And this is a smaller group. And we started talking about policy, things that we could do differently. And we came up with the metrics that everybody was comfortable in us looking at and seeing if we could do something about kind of our hypothesis was this dispatch to disposition. So can you talk about the difference between the executive committee and the task force itself, who the members are, how they come to be selected, how often they meet and the differences in their goals? The executive committee is a smaller group. It has two advocate representatives as well as DPD, which is it's either the chief of police or the chief over uh, family violence with the lieutenant. So we have a representative from DPD that attends somebody that is a representative from the DA's office. The DA comes to some of the meetings, but Jerry Varney, uh, which oversees the family violence unit at the DA's office participates. Um, so that's a smaller group. And we look, um, they're the ones that establish the metrics and then they're the ones that um, are the, probably the primary providers of all the different numbers that are involved in our um, the annual summary report. Then we have a larger task force that meets quarterly. And the larger task force includes, it's really open to attorneys, everybody that services any um, either a shelter or has any other type of services, and counselors in the domestic violence field. Um, it could be, we can, those meetings can be as you know, small as 20, as large as 35 or 40. Those are open to the public. Occasionally we have media that attends those meetings. And then we still have at those meetings, our, the executive task force is, is also included in that group. And how many people are members of the executive committee? Um, about eight, depending on. Oh, we also have the city, the city attorney's office, or that does a class C misdemeanors. They participate. Okay, so is it fair to say that the te- the quarterly task force meetings are used to essentially as like focus groups and data gathering from the community to then inform the priorities of the executive committee meetings? Yeah. That's a that's a pretty good summary. Yeah, at the the larger group, issues will bubble up that we need to address, and some of them have to be addressed in that executive committee group. Um, right now, we've actually been meeting that kind of smaller group has been meeting the executive group. We've been looking at um, a gun surrender policy, and that's kind of what we've been focused on the last six months. Oh, the judges are part of that group too. I kind of misspoke with that. Some of the, the local um, judges participate. So, and, and really it's to facilitate that communication. What, what information is not being handed over from one, like the law enforcement to the prosecutors? What's not showing up in the courtroom? And, and how could we improve those communications? So the, the, the metrics 
or kind of help us identify what we're doing well or what we need to improve. But really it's that collaboration is almost really the big intangible is that they're regularly talking with each other and, and maybe and seeing trends or seeing, you know, ways that we could, you know, improve the way the cases move, you know, through that entire process. Are there things that we could be doing differently? That, sometimes it's not even policy or it's, or it's not even, it's just like if we attach this report to that and if we do it this way, it'd be easier. You know, sometimes it's just really communication that makes the process more effective. And is there an opportunity for survivors in the community to participate in the executive committee or is that exclusively for um, city agency members? The survivor's voice on the executive is through the, the advocates. So there's not any um, direct survivor that sits on the executive force, but we have several that are part of the larger task force. So those advocates are the ones that we work with. Um, you know, they're kind of representing that entire population at the executive level. Okay. And uh, so turning to your 2016-2017 annual report, um, very impressive, I have to say. Uh, it's, it was, I think there was over 3,000 variables that were collected, um, which is an increase from over 2,500 the previous year. So just in terms of data collection feat and analysis, I think um, this was an exercise um, that I was very impressed by. So can you talk about first the structure by which uh, the task force historically came to be able to identify what the variables were and the systemic um, mapping of all of the services that were happening in Dallas to be able to drill down then on the metrics that they were trying to calculate and measure for success. Okay, from the very beginning, we brought in the University of Texas um, professors to help us really identify the metrics that what were obtainable that we would be able to be able to come up with those numbers. Uh, and then they're, they're criminologists. So they, they had an idea of what they thought we should be looking at. It's groups of data. It's not an all inclusive. Like we're not looking at every single case following through. It's kind of a snapshot of what's happening. Uh, and, and then it was fun. You know, what could we do with the amount of funding that we could secure for a three year period? Um, and so it was a lot of work that it, it was an entire year really to come up with what we were going to look at. Um, and, and I think some of it after doing it, it's, we're about to publish the fourth year. Some of it's been helpful and there's other numbers, um, that we really, it hasn't, it really hasn't changed our act, what we're doing. And, and I think that's going forward. Um, it has identified that we need more shelter capacity. Well, another thing that we've identified is having potentially one common number in the area that they could call and to be able to like route. We haven't done that yet, but that's something that this kind of study and the information has revealed would be helpful for the victims. If it was last year, we looked at, does New York do what's called a lethality assessment? Yes, it does, but it varies across um, different entry points, what the assessment is and how it's used. So in Dallas, it's required on any DV call that it is completed. Now, we did find last year we were not filling out as many, and it was the, so we had a compliance. We've, we, we're down officers, and it's somewhat of a 
identified that that was an, an issue, that we were not um, filling them out for every case. So I think we'll, that'll be something we'll be interested to find out what those numbers look like this year. But the, the officers are required to fill it out. And if the victim answers yes to four of the 11 questions, then they have to actually call um, the hotline at that point and, and offer assistance to the victim. They don't always accept the assistance, but we have to introduce the and, and share that, and, you know, have somebody on the phone talk to them and make sure they're aware, they are aware that there is help out there if they so, you know, seek it. Mm-hmm. And and so in identifying these 3,000 plus variables, uh, your partner, the university, did they have to work with various city agencies who were already collecting this data in their own systems and do some sort of data aggregation exercise? Because you said it took a year. Well, it was a year to establish what we were going to try, to, what what metrics we're going to monitor, and we've added things on, um, but we knew. We knew the numbers, the raw numbers themselves needed to be interpreted and, and to see, OK, this is this is a practice that's changed. This is maybe why these numbers are different than they were last year. And it does require the agencies, the, the different shelter agencies have to go in and manually put their numbers in, as well as DPD has to go and submit those numbers. So it is a, everybody has to participate, um, the agencies, about sharing their numbers. Some of them would be available. Well, the DPD would be available in some of the DAs on, you know, public portals, but the, we are not, the professors are, are getting them directly from the agencies versus them having to go into open portals and trying to pull the information. So there is a cooperation that's uh, required from, you know, the police department as well as the DA's office and the advocates. So I I was impressed by the fact that not only did you have the numbers to identify capacity for these shelters, for example, but you also had numbers to identify utilization rates, as you referenced earlier. So this is completely dependent on the data integrity of all of the participants in, in the system. Is that right? So the shelters, everybody has to actually input correct data. Right. They have to, and, and their data, I mean, they're sharing those data with their funders. Um, so all of them, all the agencies were keeping that data. It is hard to identify the clients could be calling multiple places. So if, if they're saying they've turned down, it could be this, which is something we haven't been able to identify. If, so, if when we say this many people were turned out, it could be the same person at different places. Does that make sense? So that, yeah. that's something we can't, we, we can't um, filter out um, because they know, you know, if they're full one, you know, there might be three agencies that are full. And that, and that is what one of the, one of those issues has kind of led us to the idea of, could we do some type of a, cent- or a phone number and then, then you were you called and then you were sent to one of the agencies versus you as a victim having to pick up the phone and check the availability. Is there a, is there a way to share that kind of data? And then we would know actually how many people we were, you know, short for uh, shelter. I think that's very interesting to explore because ultimately what I see that's 
uh, unique about your task force and the work that you're doing in Dallas is that there's this emphasis on providing holistic wraparound services um, for the survivor. And and while most of it is targeted towards, it's reactive and targeted once the survivor enters the system, it makes sense that, and it, I applaud you, that you're addressing empowerment in economic and housing and in job and uh, education-related areas that are required for someone to stay away. But wouldn't it be also valuable to collect data in aggregate form uh, so that you could then identify potentially the incremental value or impact of additional interventions on a survivor and the family and potentially also the minimum level of intervention that's required to have a positive outcome? Yeah, that would be that would be a whole nother level of kind of uh, of data that we one what we'd have to be collecting, and most of that it would be somewhat challenging because the advocates they're all privately funded. I mean, we they're not they're collaborating with us because we've all identified that working together is better than you know trying to work in silos. But the, and they all have they all probably offer a little bit different level of like it would be job training or legal help or whatever kind of service they provide. So that information would have to have to come directly from them if they wanted to look at what was the most effective way of letting somebody escape. Is that what you're asking? If if, if yeah. it's if, well, if, I, if it's job training or if it's if they get some you know housing or or. What what step is it that makes the biggest difference? And in- no, I'm I'm actually thinking like I I used to work in marketing. So if all the different um, players are providing interventions, so housing, education, oh, jobs, yeah. etc., if they have a unique identifier, and let's just say that's social security um, number for the survivor, they're sharing all of the data of who's coming in, who, who's getting served. Um, to a third party that collects all of this data from all the different service providers. And then, then they're aggregated and then the individuals are de-identified, but they're not de-identified before they're aggregated. So you can actually calculate this family has five services that they received and here's how the, you know, child is doing in school and here's how the parent or child, um, is doing in terms of health and mental health and and stability, those kinds of things. Or there has to be a job and education before the family can reach a certain economic, you know, self sufficiency level and stability right. level. So that that kind of thing. And I know that it's hard, but I feel like for certain populations, like the justice involved population or foster care youth who age out who get wraparound services, those groups are having their data collected in aggregate and there's a more holistic picture. Um, and why can't we do that with survivors of domestic violence as well? No, I, I agree. I think that would be really useful information. It'd be useful information then for the the actual nonprofits that are engaged in that kind of work to see you know, where their resources need to be or could there be shared resources for one particular job training or but we we haven't we haven't taken it to that level. But and we would have to. That would be a real, um, you know, 
we're the city, so we've got a little bit more control of what happens within DPD and the government agencies that are involved. That would have to be a real initiative that I'll think all the the advocates or the the shelters and the agencies were on board with. And none of none of them receive. Well, I shouldn't say any government funding. Some of them at some level, maybe at tax tax credit for their building or, but they're not, they're not, op- most of them are not operated on any type of government money. Small, some of them maybe get some CBDG money that flows through, but most of them are privately funded. Um, but I, it's definitely something I would discuss with all of them and see if they would be, you know, find that helpful. And they may do some of that analysis within their own agencies. I don't, but it wouldn't be, like you said, at the aggregate of being able to look at all the victims in the area. Yeah. I, and, I, and I'm familiar with some organizations that do that with, as you mentioned, child protective services. I'm on another board uh, related to uh, child abuse. And that's, that's exactly what the kind of d- data gathering they're doing to find out. And then they go to the state to find out, you know, what's the most effective child prevention initiatives. Yeah. And looking at the, um, the demographics of the clients who were served that were part of your 2016-2017 task force annual report. Yeah, had the demographics included. Yeah. yeah, I so what struck me is for example educational attainment, pretty much 80% of those who are being served who are victims or survivors of domestic violence, they either had a high school, a high school equivalency or less than high school educational level. And so it seems like for at least that particular um, criteria, there's a correlation between lack of education and, you know, risk to um, being susceptible to domestic violence. And, and whatever that cause is, causal relationship is, it seems like so much of what's happening in task forces is about being reactive, as I said earlier, and not being preventive, yeah. right? And then in terms of age, um, what was interesting is that over 35% of the individuals affected are 35 or older, and then almost 30%, 28% specifically are under 18. So those two groups are very vulnerable. And it just seems like prevention is something that not enough of the cities around the country are doing enough about. And I'm wondering what you think Dallas can do more about with regard to that, because a lot of what I read in your um, annual report with regard to causes, I have to say, I was very disappointed in. There was a comment in the uh, report where a, a Websdale research paper where an expert on domestic homicides identified four areas for or four factors that were quote unquote causally linked with crimes. And they seem to be really correlated, not causally linked. And and the four factors were divorce, um, monetary hardships, culture, uh, and mental illness. And I, and I feel like these are kind of myths that are correlated symptoms of domestic violence, but not the causes. And it's not, and I was surprised to read that. Well, I'll comment on um, some of the demographics and some of our conversation when it, when that was the first year we published that was, those were the demographics of the individuals that had seek that sought help um, at at the shelters that participate in this program. There's probably another demographic in our city that has uh, is seeking support either with private counseling 
or is not seeking shelter at a shelter, but has has resources, has family or has their own financial needs. I mean, we know that domestic violence is in all demographics. So it's not saying um, the demographics identified here were those seeking the really the public, you know, free support, essentially, because they're not they go go to these shelters. Um, the agencies are the are the ones um, that do all the fundraising, and they're free uh, on the most part. So that, that what it is a little it's a, not a snapshot of all of the domestic violence um, survivors that we have located within our city. And if they're not seeking services at one of these places, though, it is challenging to you know identify um, or, or you know get their have their data available. Uh, I, so that, I, I agree. I don't think that's causing the domestic violence, but, um, some of the factors that you mentioned earlier, uh, but they are, they do contribute. I know with our, in our less lethality assessment profile, if, um, a offender is out of work, um, he is more, you know, they've, they've shown he's more high, high risk is increased. He's more likely to, um, to abuse. So there are, there are economic factors that do impact um, domestic violence. But those factors can also be traced. You know, there've also been studies around how male entitlement and um, Mm -hmm. mindset of male supremacy are um, tied to uh, greater rates of violence and using violence as a behavior for a certain domination, right? Yeah, and yeah, so, exactly. so it, if you're if you're out of work, um, or in other cases, if your partner is seeking independence by getting a job or um, going to school, there's also correlations of higher rates of domestic violence when those incidents, those changes in their lifestyle happen, and. It points to the threat to the the male sort of status in that family relationship. Um, so it's it seems to me it's less causal and more correlative. Correlated, yeah. Um, and I and I would have to speak. I mean, I'd have to kind of have the professors probably explain that or why their findings, um, you know, were expressed that way. But but preventive when you're talking about I, I i agree we do have participants available like the the school district but we don't um i don't think i, I think it's just because of the limited resources we probably don't do enough focus on how we can prevent abuse other than the recognizing that somebody that witnesses abuse is way more likely to and, and I, I think all of our advocates um try to you know, when there are children involved and asking their, the, the victim, is the child witnessing this kind of um, violence and, and how that could affect the child? Right. We all do a counseling to try to prevent, to, to prevent those cycles from reoccurring. And your background, actually, you have a medical background. You are yeah. a licensed nurse. So I'm, I'm sure you're very familiar with ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, mm-hmm. and the um, you know, correlation between um, being exposed to domestic violence and those kind of family dynamics on abused children. Exactly. Um, and so it just seems to me that a lot of the prevention in terms of educational programming is about quote unquote healthy relationships. That's right. what we have in New York. And personally, I feel that that's kind of culturally relative and also culturally mm-hmm. specific. And what would be helpful is 
teaching critical thinking from a very young age around understanding power and power dynamics and how it shows up in different ways, how it shows up in gender and race and class and in our, all of our relationships and being able to question and recognize it and use power and privilege responsibly. Um, and that's something that if we can be honest about and more transparent about, there wouldn't be such a cultural backlash, I think, where right now, as you know from our sort of Supreme Court confirmation hearings, there's a cultural backlash around what's happening to half of the population, whether it's legitimate or not. And because lots of our experiences are not being voiced um, or shared with ourselves, with our family members, and certainly, you know, as a culture with society. And unfortunately, yeah, we're civility is, you know, I don't want to say it's a thing of the past, but we're not seeing it um, at all at all levels like we like we need to be and treating people disrespectful to outright abusive is has been um almost it's become accepted i mean you know on a public front so yeah we're in a very interesting times about how to take those and and because people talk behind you know, faceless media sort of behind, they're not a face. They're, they're, people are just are bombarded with mistreatment of humanity on a regular basis now that it's something we need to go back and teach mm-hmm. again. If you could share with other DV task forces across the country some lessons learned, um, what would they be? If they're either starting a task force or um, thinking about it, what would be some of the advice that you would give? My first advice is to get everybody in the same room um, and then I'm, and just start talking about the experiences, uh, the challenges. If you're an advocate or shelter agency or if you're what police are experiencing um, and at the DAs, what why cases are hard to to prosecute, I mean, just having those frank discussions and then talking about how you could communicate better and try to help each other out. And what if you see the advocates are seeing, um, you know, a treatment or if they're, if they're feeling something's not working in the system. One of the things that we actually were able to do was to go get protective orders. We, we open satellite offices out in the community. That was something that advocates said, um, you know, the victims were, it was, it was difficult to be able to go through that process and intimidating and how can we make that easier? Uh, So just having those, my, my first advice is get in the room and just start talking and, you know, see each other as partners um, and how you can work together. You don't, you know, our metrics are they're but they're, they're great. There's something that we can follow, but what really makes, I think our program work is that we're, we get in the room and we start talking and we share experiences and we start talking about if we're seeing common trends, what, uh, you know, how can we address it like on, you know, at the moment. The data that you collected through your university partner seems really uh, comprehensive. If a city doesn't have a university partner, nor does it have the resources internally to um, build that kind of data collection system? What do you recommend that they do? That's why I said just um, actually getting together. You know, the data the data is good, but unless you're you're really ch- taking that data and making big changes, 
um, it is, you know, it can, it's, a, it's a lot of information to digest and a lot of work and a lot of resources required in dollars and having that because just having the data without an interpretation and that's needed. I mean, you need the uh, university involved at, at that level, but just talking, meeting regularly is, is really step one. It doesn't take actual, you know, having those numbers, but just having the the communication and letting the advocate, it is really important for, I think, for police to hear the voices of those that are the boots on the ground, what, what they're seeing and how their clients are being treated by the police. And then, you know, training the police, how to respond to calls, how to identify um, abuse, you know, and when they've made a call is hugely important. So, those are the kind of steps to, you know, be able to train officers and the advocates. So those two talking are really important to the communication between the agencies. What success would you like to share that the task force is responsible for? You know, we have have a high risk um, program now that works under DPD. Uh, we have a caseworker now that's embedded in with the police department to be able to identify. I mean, that's kind of our, our focus was we want to have all victims at all levels, we, but we started at the high risk. We wanted to prevent any more deaths that in Dallas. So we were able to look at cases and see and identify who we thought women were at the greatest risk and do home visits. And not now it was home visits originally just by a police officer. Now we have a counselor that goes with them and to make sure they have safety plans or make sure that they have protective orders if needed. Um, and I, we don't know how many lives we could have prevented by making sure that we have that kind of outreach, but I would have to, you know, assume we have saved lives by making sure that those victims know that, you know, there's help available to them. At a city level now, we're moving into um, Class C misdemeanors, making sure that they are reported through the what we, we bought a system called the Live Scan, and and now this is at the other level. So it, where we've had a lot of focus on high risk and trying to prevent murders, now we're looking at the Class C misdemeanors and making sure we're holding those individuals accountable. That it's getting reported through. Um, that is connected, that if they have an affirmative finding of a family violence that is entered in the computerized criminal history of that person so that that crime will go with them, not just from our county, but to other counties. We're doing this at a city level through the live scan, through Class C, to make sure it's reported through the system. But we're actually going to take it legislatively to see if we can make sure that it is connected to everybody's criminal history at a misdemeanor or above so that we don't have, we don't miss any opportunities to be able to enhance a, um, a case or, and we can better respond um, and have that in- information when they would police are responding to a 911 call. So they are aware of the criminal history involving this complaint. So we've come to the end of the conversation where I have adapted the James Lipton questionnaire from inside the actor's studio. And I have a set of questions I ask every guest. First question I want to pose to you is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Our future is at stake. I mean, the future of um, 
I mean, it, it's enormous. <laughs> how, how, what's the best way to phrase it? But, you know, the, the future of everybody being able to be successful with their own identities and in their own, you know, bodies and within their own genders and, you know, the, the respect of humanity is, is going to be lost if we don't, um, you know, in, in, in this kind of violence. What gives you hope? What gives me hope? Um, I mean, I was going to say it's so cliche, but it's, it's the um, innocence of the youth and their confidence that they can change the world. I mean, when I'm around kids, and I, I don't want it to be, I mean, I guess what I'm concerned about is they're going to lose that sense of hope. And, but that I think, I think kids have it and the innocence um, of, you know, the young child. And if we can, can bring them up in the right environment, um, we will, we will see change. Final question. And it'd be helpful if you could also reference what the task force recommends with regard to this question, which is what can we do more of, less of, start or stop? We can do more of not asking why a woman stays in a domestic violence um, situation, but being there to support, accept, not judge, uh, and guide them to the help that is available. I think often um, we find with domestic violence victims that they won't come out um, because they're ashamed or they feel like they will be judged. Um, and then if they do, maybe they share it. Somebody will, you know, question them. They will also try to tell them what to do. Sometimes they want to, uh, victims, you, you just need to listen. Um, they might be ready to seek the kind of help uh, that you might just, you know, why would they, why would they not leave if this is happening at their home? And um, so I, you just, you have to be able to, uh, listen, guide um, when you are exposed to domestic violence. And you need to, I think the public needs to talk about it. This is not, it is a, um, it's a public safety issue. And I even find in my neighborhoods that they don't want to report domestic violence incidents because then it looks like there's crime in their neighborhood and they don't feel like this is crime. And I'm like, this is crime at the worst level and we're, we're supposed to be safe in your own homes and you have women and children um, that are not safe in their own homes. So the, it, and it, we need to talk about it as a community. Men need to talk about it within their circles that they won't be friends with other men who engage in that type of behavior. It's not acceptable to, um, to treat you know, your wife or your girlfriend um, in that manner and be abusive. Um, it physically, emotionally, whatever type of abuse um, you know, we see, and, and I, I say women, but I do want to recognize that we do have male victims and we have a male shelter here in Dallas now. So it is, it's not just um, about women, but it is the majority of women. But I don't want to uh, say we're not here to help all victims of domestic violence. Council Member Gates, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you. Um, you challenged me with a lot of questions. It was a good discussion. I'm hopeful I'm going to take some of the information back to my group. And, and if anybody in New York wants to hear more about what we're doing, you know, please feel free to, to reach out. We need to really share the kind of successes, what works, what doesn't work, 
you know, with each other. And my office is on a call tomorrow with King County about a gun retrieval and successful program they have here. So I think when we find things that work, we need to make sure that we talk about it and we share it and best practices. um, That's how we can move the needle. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It. The mission of Can Do It is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. Can Do It helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at kanduit.com. Can Do It. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuen. Thank you.